Okay, this was just a message. It's on my heart. It's not part of a series. Um, this was one where it's just, to be honest, there's lots of kind of crazy things going on in the world, which is nothing new, <laughs> like in some sense. Um, I saw a headline where the president of you know, Ukraine was saying that, come and look, the, the apocalypse has taken place in, in Ukraine, and obviously we all know and hopefully are praying for the the conflict of Russia invading Ukraine and the war there and such a intense mess. Um, but it's interesting when heads of state are using language of the apocalypse. And of course, the media loves that. And we'll just, you know, gaslight that till for, to make as much money as they can. <laughs> um, and yet, there's a reality of the threat of, wow, nuclear powers are looking at odds. That's, I mean, wow, the world could change at the touch of a couple buttons. And that's real. It's a threat. It's not the level of the threat of the, you know, the 70s with the, the Bay of Pigs and Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that, but it's a threat. And it also gets, you know, Christians a little bit uh, <laughs> apocalyptic in our, in our thinking and you couple that with some of the things that are going on and, you know, Christian favorites around the mark of the beast and one world government. And, wow, there's a lot of fuel out there for that. I mean, the Scandinavian countries, I saw a, a, a news video about the microchip that is now being implanted in, not going to be, is, by choice at this point, implanted in, uh, in wrists. Uh, it, you know, it's convenience. Like, why do I want to carry my keys and a wallet when it's right there? Like, oh, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> like, man, why not? That's very convenient. And it's already happening. I saw a video on it in a number of the Scandinavian countries where it's like you got all your information, even your car keys. Like, you can start your car, like, and it's happening. And so, you know, Christians have always been talking about the mark of the beast and what that's going to mean. It's a microchip. And, hey, we're not always real precise about it. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, Miguel Gorbachev of Russia, um, he was the Antichrist because he had the mark of the beast which was the birthmark on his head. Well, you know, let's, come on, Christians, here we go. Let's, let's get a little more precise. One world government, though, that's, that's revelation. And wow, there, you can see the way that the, the lines of geopolitics are shifting so quick to where, I mean, even in the past couple of years of the pandemic, you saw that who runs the world right now? Is it nations or is it, beyond nations, where those borders are kind of missing, and it's non-elected, bureaucratic, corporate, governmental entities that are all working together and having a wildly huge impact on the entire planet. So you can see that it's very easily go to one world government. And yet, we got to be humble. Because there is no question in good scholars' mind that in the book of Revelation, when John writes about the mark of the beast, 666, and he writes about the one world government, he's talking about Nero and Rome. There's no question for good scholars. 666 is an alpha numerical code in, in the Greco-Roman world that is for Nero. And Rome has taken over the whole world. There's seven mountains in Rome. 
So, humility <laughs> is, is therefore necessary as, we're, as we wade into thinking about what's going on in the current events of the world and what does the Bible say about the end of times. Humility, that's a good place to start. But an even better place is Jesus' words. So we're going to read through Matthew 24 and 25. Those are two chapters. They're not the only place that Jesus talks about, kind of the end of days, the end of times, his return. But they are two chapters that cover a whole lot. And so in a limited amount of time, I'm going to try to run through here and look at some of the big picture themes about the return of Christ and the end of the age. I mean, it's really coming as a response to the disciples' questions. Jesus has uh, spoken about the end of the age in some fashion before this. He's talked about the destruction of the temple. And so this is Jesus right before Passover. This is a couple days before his death. And they leave the temple, and it says that Jesus and the disciples are talking about the temple. And, And Jesus makes the comment in verse 2, they point out the buildings of the temple and says, you see these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. They will not be thrown down. So to a first century Jew, to any Jew, frankly, before AD 70 when it was destroyed, this is an utterly shocking declaration that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so Jesus is he talks about that all in every single gospel. It's recorded that Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed. He talks about his own temple that's going to be resurrected, but as well the physical temple. So it's very curious. And it says in verse 3, then, the, the disciples are very interested, like all of us are in some way. I mean, we're talking about the end of the world, right? This is interesting. It should be. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? which they're referring to the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, so let's jump into it here. Concerning the return of Christ and the end of the age, where does Jesus put our focus? As a follower of Jesus... That should be the question that we ask about any topic in life. Where does Jesus put our focus? Not where does the news media put our focus, or not even where does that Christian commentator put our focus, or where does that book about the end times put our focus? Where does Jesus put our focus? These two chapters are a huge answer from Jesus about where to put our focus. Now, they're not the only things the Bible says about the end of days, the end of this age, and so it's not the only thing to study, but I'm a fan of Jesus. (laughs) So when we're asking big questions, I think Jesus is a great place to start, letting him be our filter and go from there. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, Jesus answered them, see to it that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning 
of the birth pangs. So it's very interesting that the very first thing that Jesus says when he's beginning to answer his que- the disciples' questions about the destruction of the temple, the, his return, the end of the age, how does it all fit together? Jesus gives a word of caution. He says, don't be led astray. Led astray is that picture in the Bible of you have lost focus of your eyes on Christ. So he just starts with a simple, don't be led astray. There's going to be a lot of things that can lead you off of your focus of the true, the one true Christ. And then he gets into this picture. It's interesting. He starts with like the cautions. Don't be. And he frankly straight up says, don't be an alarmist. Don't be an alarmist about any names. Wars, famines, earthquakes. When you see these things happening, he says, This is all going to take place, and this is not the end yet. Verse 8, all of these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. So in other words, I watch uh, a lot of movies because I got little kids. This is like, oh, Chicken Little. Don't be a Chicken Little Christian. (laughs) Jesus would probably say that if he was here today. But that's exactly, I mean, he's starting. His whole thing is don't be alarmed. And it's so interesting because it's like if we assess ourselves and we think about the end times, what's the typical Christian posture out there? Uh, Alarmist, I'm going to just be honest, I see that a lot. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Oh, Russia invading Ukraine, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Come on, eye roll. Don't don't join the, the, you know, collective uh, voice of, well-intentioned, false prophetic voices that is embarrassingly long in Christian history. I mean, it's well-documented in Christian history that every single generation of Christians since the resurrection of Christ has had good people that were completely convinced that he is coming back in this generation because the current events line up perfectly with biblical prophecy. And you know what they all have in common aside as loving Jesus and well-intentioned? They're totally wrong. That's just the caution that Jesus is is starting with. Don't be alarmed. I would even say there's some things he doesn't want us to figure out. I'm going to get there in a minute. But his clear teaching is, as a Christian, don't be an alarmist about wars, famines, and earthquakes. And he goes on to actually add into that persecution and evil, verses 9 to 14. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my sake. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And the end will come. So his, there's a continued emphasis on don't be alarmed by wars, famine, earthquakes, and now he adds into that. Don't be alarmed by persecution. He's repeating something that he shared in other places, which is a very clear and sobering reality that when you are an ambassador for Christ, you are entering into the war of the heavenlies, the spiritual battle of the kingdom of light 
against the kingdom of darkness. So be sober about the reality. Jesus said it in other places like this. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Persecution will come. And now we in our, our world have, in our country in particular, have had the, because of the bravery and risk and integrity and faith of our founders to incorporate Christian values into the documents that then put forth a society that the world has never seen in the religious freedom, we, we have real no understanding of persecution, but we're, we're the anomaly. Like, it was interesting, I saw, heard this quote the other day, I think it was Sean Foyt that said, like, uh, religious, the United States did not found religious freedom. Religious freedom founded the United States. Good. That's good. That's good to think about. <laughs> and, but that also has made us, in some ways, prone to alarm. Because when there's any whiff of anti-Christian sentiment, oh, the world must be ending. <laughs> like, come on, no. We're living in like a religious freedom paradise that almost no one in human history knows. Persecution is normal, Jesus is saying. Being hated by the world is normal. So don't be alarmed when that happens. These are just the words of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and don't be alarmed by evil in the earth. Sadly, but real. Hate, betrayal, lawlessness, they are real. They, they, those are descriptions of the broken and fallen world. And again, in, maybe in our, in our context, in the United States of America, those things are are less real than, or they've been less experienced sometimes to, by some people than what was the norm for the most of human history. I mean, you go back and, and read some of these, the context of, of where Christianity was birthed and the, the morality at the time, and it's absolutely offensive. Like, it was so common. I think it's a book I'm reading right now, How Christianity Changed the World. And it's, it's a really good book, and it's very, but it's very simple. It's like, let's just look at all these kind of moral uh, ethics that we know to be normal that up until the time of Christianity and, and then its influence and really in its kind of creation of or, or massive influence on the whole Western civilization, these things were not normal. Like, for example, uh, infanticide. It was absolutely an accepted practice, in, in fact, promoted, and I know where some of you are going. <laughs> so yes, we're, we're, it's our country, we're not, we're not proud of the way we're treating babies, but it was an accepted practice for, for babies to be birthed and then just, for any reason whatsoever, just exposed, just left. Just, no, I don't like how that one looks. It's a girl. That's a huge one. Most families of that era, you can they go back and catalog it, never had more than one girl. Why? A waste of a life. Literally. And that's, that is utterly offensive to our what? <laughs> you could say our, our Judeo-Christian worldview mindset that is in the founding documents that said, no, all are created equal, given rights by their creator, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The creator gives us those rights. 
Our government is not the one who gives it to us. They are supposed to affirm those, lift those up, protect those that God gave us. Anyways, got to hurry up. Evil is not a new idea. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be alarmed by evil in the earth. And then he switches to these, the, this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he has this, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by war. Don't be alarmed by famine, earthquakes, persecution, evil. Instead of being alarmed, our response is twofold. Endure to the end. Another way to say this is, no matter what the outward circumstances are, keep walking with Jesus. The one who endures to the end, that's the point. It's, it, it will be hard. It's going to be hard. For the vast majority of human history, life has been hard for all of these reasons mentioned. And so he's saying in the midst of all these real and difficult and painful challenges of life, what's your posture? Oh, Jesus, just hurry up. I mean, there is a healthy desire for us to want Jesus to come back, but not out of defeat. He says, there's a lot of hardships in this world. Endure. Keep walking with me because my, your job is not yet done. When I come back, your job is done. And this is the second part. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So there's our job description. In the midst of all this crazy chaos in the world, we still have a job to do. We don't get alarmed by it because that's what happens in the broken and fallen world. So keep walking with me, Jesus says, and do your job. This is a little foretaste of what's about to come later in the Great Commission. It's language of Jesus saying, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. This is right in the middle of Passover week, Passion Week. So Jesus is literally like less than a week away from saying the full commission that this is an echo of, where he says, go therefore, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the nations. Let's get it right. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. I never saw that part of it before in that way until the end of the age, meaning until this age is over, which is the exact same word that the disciples use in verse three when they say, will you tell us about the end of the age? And so Jesus says, until the end of the age, you have two things I'm calling you to do. Keep walking with me and do your job of advancing the kingdom throughout the earth, making disciples. That's where your focus should be. I think that's pretty interesting. In summary so far, let's see what the 99-cent download says. Jesus is teaching about the end times. Don't get swept up into alarmist thinking. Just keep walking with me and do your job of making disciples. Hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good Bible. But he's not done.
about the destruction of the temple. Oh, man. Time is short. Okay, really briefly. What Jesus goes on to show is that the destruction of the temple and the return of Christ, the end of the age, are two different events. That was absurd in the Jewish mind. They were one at the time. I mean, it's like, oh, well, if the temple's destroyed, like, of course the world's over. It's kind of the common thinking, right? So Jesus goes on to this teaching in 15 to 23 that talks about the abomination of the desolation, and that's a reference back to Daniel, which that happened a couple of different times. It happened in 168 B.C. with the Greek king Antiochus, who under the Greek empire came in and he desolated the temple and he slaughtered a pig intentionally in the face of Jewish religion, slaughtered a pig on the altar of incense and says, where is your God, essentially? That's the desecration of the abomination. And then it happened again in AD 70, where the, this time the Roman Empire comes in, and it's General Titus, who's the son of, of the emperor at the time, Vespasian or something like that. He invaded Jerusalem in AD 70 and did a very similar thing, where he, it's the, he, he goes into the holy place on purpose to flex, to demonstrate his power. And, and they take the menorah, and they take the showbread, and they dance it through the streets of Rome, and he puts up a Roman flag right in the holy place. And they destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt since. And, and this, this was, I mean, there's even a, what is it, the Ark of, the Ark of uh, Rome, in Rome, or the Ark of Titus, in Rome, that depicts this. It depicts this Roman general, Titus, des- desecrating the temple, as Jesus predicted, and carrying through the streets of Rome in victory, saying, look, our God is bigger than the God of the Jews. We've got the menorah. We've got the show table. We won. That's the desolation of abomination that Jesus spoke of, and the world didn't end. But that didn't surprise Jesus. (laughs) It was a surprise to the Jews who couldn't think of God's presence in some place other than the temple. But you look back at human history, and it's like, and interestingly enough, though, that's part of the whole point of Jesus coming, is that the presence of God now dwells in his people. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the temple, the Bible says. And so that was a shock to even the, the followers of Jesus hearing this, but he had to separate some things, saying that is not the end of the world. In fact, the, the, the presence of God is going to, the veil is torn, the presence of God is going to dwell in you. And so that happened, AD 70. And you all know, no temple since. Moving forward, though, Jesus, again, is delineating that that event of the destruction of the temple is not the sign of the end of the age. He goes on, back focusing now in verse 23 to the theme about the return of his his coming and the end of the age. And I'm going to fly through this in in a few minutes here. Let's look at a few of Jesus' big points. I mean, we already have the, I believe, kind of life-altering big-picture filter of how do we approach the end of days. And Jesus says, don't be an alarmist. Walk with me and make disciples until the end of the age. That's big picture job description. And then we've got more from Jesus. So here we go. In verse 23, what we see very clearly is that, or 23 and, and, and following, is that the king is coming. In glory and power, there will be no doubt. That's 23 
to 28. I encourage you, and some of this, I'm, I'm doing something I rarely do, which is really kind of brush over large chunks. Usually like to dial deep in there. But this is, hey, this will be a fun one. I know we got a couple of life groups coming up. We got one today. We got one on, on Friday night. So put it up on the tee there for you <laughs> to uh, say, let's go deeper in here, wherever you are so led. But this is an opportunity for you to get in the word on your own, even outside of life group. Study more. There's some, I'm giving us some big picture bullets that then we can dig into from there. But from this section, the king's coming in glory and power. There's going to be no doubt. That's good. That's good news. Verse 32 to 35 Jesus summarizes, the day is drawing more near and near. He uses the coming of the fig tree. Talk about, hey, it's coming. But hey, you know what? That's another piece of humility because the very last words of the Bible are Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. So 2,000 years later, fits into his soon. All right? That's the humility when we're interpreting these apocalyptic events. The time is drawing near, though. That's what Jesus is saying. 36 to 44, and I'm really rushing through those because there's a couple last little bullet nugget points that are hugely important. Spend a couple minutes on each. 36 to 44, Jesus says, no one knows precisely or exactly when. His coming is going to be unexpected. And so that's where, let's go 36 to 44 in verse in, in, uh, 24. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows except you who really cleverly figure out biblical prophecy <laughs> and join the ranks of wrong. <laughs> but concerning that day, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it were in the days of Noah, so it will be in the the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware. So that's interesting. So let's think about... What must be happening in the world at that time? Things can't be so awful that people have given up on marriage. The destruction of the temple, Jesus describes, that is a tribulation like the world has never seen. And Josephus, interestingly, a first century Jew who was in Jerusalem when the temple was sacked, not a Christian, He gave a historical account that almost every Jew in Jerusalem was slaughtered by the Romans. That's a tribulation, you you know, hitherto unknown. And he said, but it was interesting, most of the Christians survived. Why? Because as soon as they saw the Romans enter the temple, they got the heck out of there. Why? Jesus said to do that. He said, when the abomination of desolation comes, run. Run for the hills to preserve your life. And it's so fascinating that Josephus, a, you know, who's a Jew, not a Christian, so he's not trying to advocate for Christians. He's like, something crazy happened. Almost all the Christians survived because they fled for the hills of Judea when the Romans came, and almost all the Jews died. It was an awful, awful, unspeakably horrible time. Exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. But fast forward to his return. Nobody's thinking about 
marriage, giving of marriage and receiving of marriage, kind of, that's the idea of you're going on with kind of a, a certain amount of normalcy with life. You're raising your kids. You're marrying them off. So Jesus is saying, when I come back, that's what's going to be happening. So it's just this interesting contrast. We can't get this picture of the temple destruction convoluted with the return of Christ. Just interesting. But he goes on to say, Therefore stay awake, verse 42, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, no matter how much we try to get into the interpretation of the minutia, Jesus is saying, that's a caution, you're not going to expect it. I just try to take the posture as a follower of Jesus that when Jesus says something, that's enough for me. So he's saying, so if you think you've got it figured out to the way you're expecting it, you're outside of the words of Jesus. I'm just saying as a follower of Jesus, typically that's not a place you want to be. I mean, it's just his words. You must be ready because you're not going to expect it. It's like a thief in the night. But, he says, you can do two things. This is verse 42 and 44. Jesus gives a double therefore. Therefore. Now, that's an action step. That's our posture. What does God want from us? Double therefore. In verses 42 and 44, he gives them to us. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And, there, and then 44. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So, as the day is drawing near, and no one knows exactly when, and it's unexpected, therefore, be awake and be ready. And I know we're going over time from normal, but give me two minutes on each and we'll be done. Be awake. This is 42 to, to 46, where Jesus says that very interesting he goes on to describe the readiness in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So this is a picture of being awake and being ready. Faithful stewardship. Let's get back there for a moment. Let me talk a little bit more about being awake. He's already made very clear in verse 42 that the Lord is coming. So I would put forth that in the rest of this chapter and 25, the examples that you're going to see, I encourage you to read them on your own. Give me feedback. Let's talk about it. Isn't it very interesting stuff? The picture of being awake that Jesus paints is that we are awake to the glorious reality that the King of Kings is coming back to inaugurate his kingdom, excuse me, to consummate his kingdom. So we stay awake to the reality that this is not our home. 
we stay awake to the reality that eternity is in our hearts. That's a beautiful uh, passage in Ecclesiastes where it says that God has put eternity into man's hearts. And when we even talk about this age, it's a very interesting little word in verse 3 where the disciples ask, when is the end of this age? And Jesus then says in Matthew 28, our job is to keep making disciples until the end of this age. And so part of being awake is that we're just living in the spiritual reality that this age is precisely that. It's just this age, and it's going to close, and there's another age coming called eternity. This life we have right now is just this age. And so that right there means you're awake to the spiritual reality that Jesus is trying to make his point about. Because many people are sleeping to the reality that this age is not all there is. This age is simply but preparation for the age to come. And so Jesus is saying, so be awake to this age and the reality behind it that the King of Kings is coming to consummate the next age. So live now awake with eternity in mind. And for Christians, in some ways, that should be a fundamental easy one. That's what we're all about. We're all about that life is not just right now, this age. You live for, you know, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. It's just material. There's no spiritual. There's no next age, age to come, afterlife, heaven. It's all just the material. You do whatever you do, and then you die, and it's over. And Jesus just says, nope, be awake. Live awake to eternity. And then the next one that comes right along the heels with that is, and so therefore, be ready. He says it, verse 44. Be ready. At any moment, you're ready. He's coming like a thief in the night. You will not expect it, but are you ready? Live life ready. Now, what does that look like? He goes on to say in verse, verse 46 exactly what it looks like. Therefore, you must be ready, verse 44, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here's readiness. Who then is the faithful and wise, wise ser servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So in other words, you can be ready by stewarding with faithfulness and wisdom where God has given you influence. God has given you, according to this picture here, a household with people to feed. It's his household and they're his people. And that's the picture. The master's coming. And are you ready to give an account with how have you been faithful and wise to steward well the people he gave you to feed? You know what, that, that, that's to me like the exact same picture as the parable of the talents. Oh, but you know what, the parable of the talents, that's not about the end times. Oh my gosh, it's the next thing in the Bible. <laughs> Almost. After the parable of the virgins, ten virgins. That one is very similar, too. You got the lamps. 
Some take oil, some take, some don't. They all fall asleep, which is, don't mix the metaphors, it's just they all weren't expecting it, but some were prepared, some were ready, some had their house in order, so when the trumpet calls and we're all, oh, here he is, there was five of them who weren't ready, they had no oil on their lamps, and Jesus was not happy about that. Bye. The ones who are ready, says, come enter the feast of the bridegroom, the marriage supper of the lamb. So it's, what is that? Be ready. You don't know when I'm coming. Are you living ready? And then to finish it off, and we'll be done here, he says, be ready. That he, now comes the parable of the talents, which I'm honest. This is revelation for me. I'm shocked. Whoa. The parable of the talents is part of the meat of Jesus' preaching on how to live in the end times. And it's all about stewardship. It's about he's coming back to consummate the new coming kingdom, the, the age of his reign on the new heaven and new earth. So now in this age, what are you doing to invest your life well so that it echoes into eternity? How are you investing your life so with what God has given you to steward well, you see the kingdom advance in and through you? That's what the king cares about when he comes back. Not if you had the prophecy perfectly figured out in times, but what have you done with your life to advance his kingdom so that when this age is done, your life has transformed eternity. Every kingdom advancement that happens on this earth transforms the age to come. That's a, that's a sacred thought. It's exactly what Jesus talks about in that parable. What you do now matters and echoes into eternity. And so he says, be ready by stewarding all of the talents he's given you, which is everything. It's your gifts, your passions, your time, talent, treasure. Everything you have, your life is your talent. It's your one talent or five or whatever. It's what he's given you. Have you invested that back in to see the kingdom advance? So the more of that age <laughs> comes into this age now, you see it. You see eternal things happening, transforming. People saved, healed, delivered. And you do your best. To see that future kingdom that's coming, you do your best to partner with God to see that breaking through right now on earth. So that when he comes back, he says, good job. Now, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> Lastly, he finishes this parable, or these, this teaching on the end times, with that famous parable about the final judgment, the sheep and the goats. So this is where he closes his teaching on the end times. And essentially, the teaching is be ready by continuing to do, excuse me, by continuing to embody God's heart to the world in serving the outcast, the poor, the broken. That's that famous passage. Where he says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. 
And it's one of the many places where Jesus talks about we serve the world. We look out, the lost, the hurting, and broken, and it ties right into stewardship, ties right into the talents. Who has God given us influence over? Who's God given us opportunity to touch? And have you stewarded well that opportunity to embody God's heart, to serve the least, the broken, the hurting, the lost? And Jesus says that echoes into eternity. So, ding, we're done. We're cooked. I was asking the Lord, Lord, I got like an hour of notes. We st- ding, stop. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we get into your word and got into your word, even in some ways just kind of an intro into some deep, deep things. Just ask that your Holy Spirit would be sealing in our hearts what you want to say to each one of us. And let's once again, for the final time, church, just take a quiet moment and ask the Holy, Holy Spirit, what do you want to seal in my heart? What are you desiring to say to me today from your word?